And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As the human rights crisis was boiling over this week, I sat down in Washington with Senator Marco Rubio for my CNN TV show. We talked about immigration, North Korea, Russia, China, and what it's like to be a Republican in the era of Trump. Here's the full conversation. Senator Rubio, it's good to be with you. Thank you. And uh, I want to apologize to you right at the top and to our listeners because I'm fighting a little bit of a throat thing. No. But I want you to do most of the talking anyways. Well, I've, I've worked hard to have a voice as deep as that. So. Yeah, I know. It's not going to last. So, um, You know, I, I, I read your memoir. And there's a very, the beginning of it is very, very compelling in the retelling of your family's immigrant story. Yeah. Your parents came over from Cuba. Ultimately, almost your entire family came over. They came over in the 50s. Why did they come? Well, I think if you asked them, and, and you know, I didn't have a chance to, my dad didn't talk a lot about his childhood. And I, my sense of it, years later, learning more about it was it was very painful. Yeah. Like, But I think at the core is they lived in a society where they felt limited. They really couldn't move forward. It was an unstable place. We forget that before Castro, there was Batista, and that thing was already picking up. So it's not clear to me that when they came on May 27th in 1956, their plans were to live in the United States forever. Uh, but they certainly wanted to live there for a long time. They felt it was a place where people like them would have a chance to do things that they couldn't do in their own country because they felt that they didn't come from the right family or have the right connections or the right education. And so it was a combination of kind of instability that the country was going through and lack of opportunity that brought them here. Um, Which is a pretty common story. It is. I mean, I'm and the son of an immigrant. My father came yeah. from Eastern Europe to uh, flee persecution, religious persecution, violence, and kind of risked his family, risked their lives to get here yeah. because of what America is. Yeah, my parents were pretty nomadic, nomadic in terms of always chasing <laughs> Uh, better opportunities. So living in the U.S., they lived in New York, they lived in uh, Miami, then Los Angeles, then back to Miami, Las Vegas, back to Miami, always moving around. But the one thing, um, in the late, early 60s, they thought about going back. When Fidel wins, there's this tremendous belief in Cuba that things are going to be better. My father actually goes back to check the place out and see if it's a good opportunity. I mean, that was their intent. And their whole family warned them, you know, don't stay here, go back, this is communism, which mm -hmm. at the time wasn't necessarily clear early on. I'm glad they came back. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, Cuba traded one kind of authoritarian kleptocracy right. for another kind of uh, dictatorship. So when you look at what's going on on the border today, yeah. Yeah. Um, you must look at it, as I do, through the eyes of the, a first-generation American who believes in this ideal of what America is. What, what is your... What was your reaction to those images that you saw? Well, I hate them. I hate those images, and I wish we weren't in this position, and I think we can fix it. Um, and I think you look at it through two lenses. That's the difficult or the unique part of being in this role. On the one hand, I recognize that if you have a policy that says that the only adults who we release into the general population pending a hearing, for which many never show up for, are the adults that have children with them, then you have de facto created an incentive for people to come on that journey with children, which is a dangerous journey. Right. The flip what side does it tell of you, it... Let me just interrupt for a second. And what does it tell you that people are willing to risk their lives and the lives of their children to come here? So perhaps, unlike many of my other colleagues here, I know these people and I know their families. 
because they're in South Florida, many of them. And they are fleeing in Honduras and in Guatemala in particular, and in El Salvador, a very dangerous situations, whether it's the inability to get ahead economically or, the inability, or having to live in a place where an MS-13 gang controls the neighborhood and you're fearful for your life or you're being extorted. I mean, this is very common practice. So it tells me that, which is why I'm such a supporter of the Alliance for Prosperity, because we, we want to help those countries create conditions where people don't have to undertake these journeys. But, but what I was saying is, on the one hand, I look at it and say, I, I, you know, I get it. We can't have a, if we do this, we are actually creating this perverse incentive. We're telling people, if you bring children, you'll actually get to stay. The flip side of it is, it just doesn't feel right as a country to see these images of children separated from their parents, they're crying. And, and so there's a, the, I feel like the only way we can fix it is to pass a law that says, to the, when we have to detain families, we will detain them together so that we don't create that trauma and try to expedite their appearance before a judge so we can figure out one way or another what their status is going to be, if they qualify for asylum, if they don't, some other. But, but, I, but I just don't think this is a country that is, is going to ultimately uh, tolerate uh, a situation like what we have right now. So we can fix it, and I hope we will as soon as possible. Doesn't it feel, uh, though, that this is a bit of a manufactured uh, crisis? Because there was a policy decision was made yeah. and right from the beginning to separate families. Uh, we know that uh, uh, then Secretary Kelly spoke to that when he was before Congress. And it seems as if the things that were done by uh, uh, executive action can be reversed by executive yeah, action. So I think the decision was made to prosecute every one of these cases for illegal entry is primarily as a misdemeanor. Um, that was a now this is a consequence of that decision and they were aware that what the consequence would be and other administrations have understood that and chose not to do it. So they made a decision that when an adult <coughs> enters, it, it illegally and it crosses the border, unlawfully enters, we're going to prosecute them. That means we have to hold them in criminal detention pending a hearing. But you cannot hold children because of an existing consent agreement with the federal courts under called the Flores Agreement. So the practical implication of that is you're holding the adults but you can't hold the children, the families are separated. And, uh, and that's the situation we find ourselves in. The president really has only two options at this point, and that is to release the adults that have children and ask them to come back for a hearing, knowing a large percentage of them will not return, or uh, detain the, the parents, thereby separating them from the children. I think we need to create in Congress a third option under the law, which is the ability to hold families together and expedite, move them to the front of the line if it is a case of unlawful entry that involves children they will move to the front of the line in terms of getting a hearing and a processing done. At the same time, I hope this redoubles our efforts to help Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, and countries such as these to improve conditions on the ground so that these, you know, we don't have a migratory crisis from Costa Rica. We don't have a migratory crisis from Panama. We don't have a migratory crisis from Chile or Peru mm -hmm. or Colombia because those countries are places where the people from there can live there without fear of, of these sort of situations that these people are facing. The president has depicted the people who are coming as, as dangerous. He said they're, they're not sending us their best uh, rapists and murderers and so on. But, you know, the vast, vast 98, 99 percent of these people are being charged with a misdemeanor. They don't have criminal histories. Is it fair? Yeah, I, well, I, I don't think it's way. ever wise to just cast a broad net of generalization over any group of human beings. So yes, there are people that cross the border that are dangerous and criminals and the like. I would say, through my experience, the vast majority of people are coming over because they just want a better life. And, um, and, and my sense of it is, if you're a father, 
For example, my situation, my family's desperate. They're living in a dangerous situation. I'd do almost anything to protect my children and find a better life for them. So we have to understand that element of it. That doesn't mean we don't have to have laws on our end. Mexico has immigration laws and Canada has immigration laws. They just warned all the people under TPS and, and so forth not to come into Canada because they wouldn't be allowed to stay. So it's public policy making is difficult because it often forces you to try to account for both of these. But, but I, I, I don't think we should generalize that. I think the vast majority of people crossing the border are just coming because they want something better. Uh, I mean, I guess I find, I, I, I'm, I'm asking you, do you find it offensive? I think knowing it, the yeah, people well, that you, you, you represent some of them, right. as you, you mentioned. You know these people, as you mentioned. They are like your family and my family. Well, I don't think it's accurate. And to the extent that it's not accurate, if someone's coming across the border that's not a criminal, or you know them, or they're a family member of yours, and you hear them described that way, uh, of course you'll be offended. I also think, by the way, it, it may be a small percentage, but it's significant nonetheless, that there are people crossing the border uh, who, who are members of MS-13 or are members of, uh, involved in criminality. We know that too, but, but I think both things can be true. Um, and, and at the same time, I think you can acknowledge that the majority of the people that are coming here are not coming here to break any laws or live on welfare. They're coming to work and provide their families a better life, but that doesn't mean we don't have to have laws. You stood on a platform many, many times with Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. He thinks this is a winning issue uh, for him. Uh, Corey Lewandowski, uh, who was his campaign manager, said the other day, people don't come out to vote. He's talking about the midterms now. They won't come out to say thank you. They come out if they're aroused. And immigration is an issue that'll get people riled up. And in fact, 58% of Republicans approve of the separation policy, uh, according to the polls. So, isn't the president kind of playing his, uh, a very consistent political hand here, depicting immigrants as a threat, uh, you know, zero tolerance, and so on? Well, first of all, I think he campaigned on it and was elected on it. So, so to the, whether you agree with him or not, to the extent that what he's doing now is consistent with what he promised he would do if elected, I think people have to acknowledge that. Uh, they may not like it, but this is what he promised he would do. I think you have to separate the politics from the public policymaking. And that's become increasingly hard. We live in a constant cycle of trying to figure out what we can do today. We all have to pay part. You can't, look, you can't be here to make a difference if you don't win an election. But at the same time, you've got to do things that are good for the country when you get here. And in this particular case, on this issue, uh, it may very well be a winning issue for in, in, among a lot of people because there's real frustration in this country. There is, that the immigration laws haven't been enforced. I'm in, I live in Miami-Dade County as a majority minority community, large number of immigrants. There's frustration there among people that immigrated to this country that we accept 1.1 million people a year to come here on, with green cards, uh, and yet more people want to come illegally. We can be generous, but we have to have a process by which people enter the country. There has to be a process by which we decide when they come, how many come, and who comes. And, and, that, and that has to be enforced in order for it to work. So I think, again, you can be for an immigration system that works and that is enforced in laws, but I think you also have to do it in a way that doesn't violate who we are as a people and who, what our character is as a nation. And that's what I think we continue to kind of struggle with because, and you see it play out. You know, Franklin Graham doesn't like the separation, but he supports the president on other things. That's where you start to see these sort of debates play out uh, because it puts these two principles in conflict sometimes. So Tucker Carlson told his viewers the other night that they want to change your country. I don't know who the they was exactly, um, but uh, you know, my reaction is immigrants built this country, your family, my family, um, and, and yet there's an audience for that 
isn't there? Yeah, I would say there's always, always been an audience for that. I mean, every wave of immigration right. in this country has met with resistance every single time, but that's not unique to America. Angela Merkel is on the verge of, of her government collapsing over the issue of immigration. Immigration has driven the rise of nationalist parties throughout Europe. Canada just issued a very stringent warning to TPS beneficiaries in the United States not to go to Canada because they will not be allowed to stay. The Mexican government over the last seven years has stepped up enforcement on its southern border. Uh, so country after uh, the, the Italians turned away a ship of migrants that had to divert to Spain. So every society, when facing a wave of people from other places, reacts in this way. And this has been true for thousands of years. Uh, the United States continues to be a pro-immigration country. We accept more legal immigrations in, um, immigrants to America than virtually, in fact, any country in the world. And we'll do so again this year. You've made kind of a metamorphosis on this issue. You've journeyed. Uh, along a path here because you were a leader of the Gang of Eight back in 2013. And I remember 2013, the conventional wisdom was the Republican Party in order to win needed to be a more open party, more tolerant party, needed to uh, deal with the issue of uh, undocumented uh, immigrants. And you tried to solve that problem, worked with colleagues, right. passed a bill in the Senate, but you wound up uh, sort of walking away from that bill. The House never took it up. You, right. you urged them not to. What happened and was what, what, what caused you to uh, yeah, back away from that? It's pretty straightforward. I'm in the law passing business. I'm a lawmaker. So you can always produce a piece of legislation that sounds really good but has no chance of passing. In the end, you can only change the law if you can pass a law that passes the House, the Senate, and is signed by the President. The bill we passed in the Senate was the best bill we could produce as a Republican in a Senate in which Harry Reid controlled the flow of legislation. But it had no chance of passing in the House unless it was dramatically amended, which they could not do. And we also had to get it signed by President Obama. So the construct of what we put together couldn't become law. So in the end, uh, that, that's my job. And to pass a law in America isn't just this is the way we want it to be. And so either jump on board or we do nothing at all. That's why we've got nothing at all. That's why nothing has passed on immigration. Not since 2013. Nothing has passed on immigration going back to efforts that failed in 2005 and 2007. So it's great to have great ideas. But in this republic, in order to turn an idea into a law, you have to come up with something that can pass the House and get 60 votes in the Senate and be signed by whoever the president and be upheld by courts. The way you describe it makes it sound like we're, we're not going to solve this immigration problem anytime soon. Well, I think every effort so far has failed. And I fear that this issue to deal with the kids is going to fail as well, because if Chuck Schumer's position becomes we're not going to pass any law, let the president change it by just going back to the old policies. Um, for example, then we're nothing, these kids are going to continue to face this situation. Um, I think we have a chance to pass a law that says we're not going to separate the families, we'll hold the families together, but we're not going to go back to the old policy. That is better than what we have right now. No one can argue that at least holding the families together is better than separating them, but we'll see if we can get you know, that done. I agree with you that I think uh, Democrats should, should work with you on this. But there's not a big appetite in the House for it. Well, I think we can do what we can do here and then try to but see it sounds what we like can. But it sounds like... Well, there's an appetite in the House to do it. I think the question in the House is going to be whether they're going to try to put that together with other changes dealing with the, the DACA recipients. And Which the isn't going to fly. Well, I think we, this is an emergent crisis. Like, this is before us now. Okay, every day... More and more kids are being put in these centers. Nobody says they like, everybody says they don't like it. Everybody says they want to fix it. So I think common sense says, 
Let's jump on that. Let's fix that issue. And then we can work on the other issues later. But if the House insists on marrying the two together, then I think we're going to have problems. There's no doubt. But, it, but if we can just do this as a standalone issue, let's focus on this family separation issue, we can get it done. It'll be a real test to see if we can function in, in a crisis-type situation right now. And, and I hope we can, because otherwise there's a human toll for it. The, uh, someone in the White House was quoted as saying, this is good leverage to try and get these other immigration changes the president wants done. Should the, these kids be used as leverage? No, and I don't think it is good leverage, to be frank. Um, I don't necessarily think that this is going to force people to somehow decide, well, we're going to vote you know, on DACA uh, the way you want in exchange for this issue. I don't agree with that assessment. I, perhaps that's how they felt or somebody in there felt, but I don't really think it should be leverage. I think there's a desire. We're going to try to fix it in the Senate. We're going to put out a bill that allows people to, that are detained for illegal entry to remain together with their children and be processed. We're going to try to get passed in the Senate. Hopefully the House will pass that as a standalone and we'll deal with the other issues as well. But you're not separately. that optimistic about that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think this one is so dramatic and so impactful that hopefully it can break through the noise. Um, I, I, so I'm hopeful, but um, unfortunately, we're going to find out pretty soon how, how bad things are around here on an you issue like this. You talked about what's going on around the world, and you, you did this very interesting interview uh, with The Economist, and it's pretty clear you're trying to think about these big forces now that are driving, uh, driving not just the vote, but public opinion everywhere in ways that are, that are uh, uh, disruptive uh, to our uh, democracies, but reflect uh, real concerns on the part of people who, that Donald Trump heard. Um, talk about that a little yeah. bit. And, and by the way, I tried to do it in 2016. Obviously, it wasn't the right campaign to do it. And I didn't do a very good job of it. But I think if we could separate ourselves from the daily life and the, and the micro and look at the macro of what's happening, the world is going through a transformation uh, of epic proportions. I would say it's like the Industrial Revolution, except it's happening you know, every three to five years. And it's disrupted everything from the kind of jobs we have to the geography of our country in terms of where people live. Um, these disruptions are coming faster than ever. And when that happens, insecurity always follows. Political insecurity, social insecurity, economic insecurity, and it manifests itself politically but societally as well. And our policies are antiquated. They're, they're not built to react to that. So for example, economic growth alone doesn't tell us enough anymore. There was a time in this country where economic growth was broadly shared because our economy provided millions of jobs that paid enough. You know, a bartender and a maid like my parents, with those jobs and very little education, were able to own a home and a car and take vacations. So if the economy grew, everybody benefited, not because of evil, but because of the structure of the economy. That's not true anymore. You can create economic growth but the way it flows is it increasingly flows to industries and jobs that are valued in the new economy. And as the cost of living rises, everybody else gets left behind. I think we've also made a mistake in, in, in my party and in general that we view Americans as consumers. In essence, we view happiness measured by how many things can you buy, hence how much money do you make, and certainly the amount of money you make is relevant. But if, if we just view Americans as consumers, then what's the difference between a government check or a paycheck. And my argument is there's more to work than just a paycheck. There's the dignity attached with that yeah. that provides you the ability to provide for your family and, and contribute to your community and see productivity out of your life. We need to remember that as well. 
It's not just enough to create jobs. It has to be the kind of jobs that allow workers to achieve dignity. And that should be the purpose of our economic policy, is to create the opportunity for dignified work. You need growth to do that. But it, we need an economy that works for people, not a country where people work for the economy. You know, uh, another effect of this uh, is this great polarity where you have people who are on the right side of this sort of digital technological divide who are doing fantastically well because of the, this, there is enormous opportunity. And then the people who you're speaking about who are on the other side who see their old industries uh, disappear. Right. Um, the president's uh, uh, promise to those people was, we're going back. We're going to go back to where we, we uh, are a manufacturing country again, where coal mines are humming. And you've said, and, and you know the rest of the story, you think that's a, a fantasy. Well, I think you can be a manufacturing country again. I don't think we're going to go back to being a textile uh, country. or uh, Our manufacturing is going to look different. Mm -hmm. It's going to be higher-ended, it's going to, the jobs, the manufacturing jobs are going to pay more. There may not be as many because it'll be more heavily automated. Um, and, um, and so uh, we can manufacture again, but we're not going to manufacture like 1950 because no one's ever been able to go back. You can only go forward. So the opportunity becomes yeah. what does the future look like and how can we embrace its opportunities? It would be like telling people at the turn of the century, we're going to go back to the horse-drawn carriage industry. And be an, we'll be an agrarian society. As opposed to embracing or, or becoming more, we're going to move people back to farms, as opposed to saying we're going to embrace the advantages of industrialization. This post-industrialization provides an opportunity, but we have to embrace it. And it isn't going to happen overnight. I mean, these transitions take time, and there's going to be pain along the way. And the job of government is to buffer that pain in the short term, but ensure that our policies are moving us towards the long term where these jobs and these new industries are located in America and are broadly available to people throughout the country. Yeah. Uh, you talk about government and the role of government. Government was very uh, instrumental in managing the transitions in the past. You had the progressive era at the end of the, uh, you know, during, after the Gilded Age and the Industrial Revolution and uh, through the New Deal. Uh, and uh, that is not, a, a classically conservative position, and you seem to be saying that conservatives need to concede the role of government. Well, I don't think conservatism has ever, true conservatism has never been about being anti-government. Um, th there is a streak in the, in, our, in the conservative movement that's become increasingly libertarian in its view of economic policy. But the role of government, I mean, the role of conservative movement is not to be anti-government. Although when you were, you were the the Tea Party candidate in 2010, there was very much a, a kind of anti-government bent to that movement. Well, there was a fear that there was a feeling that government had overreached in the issues of health care and stimulus spending and the like. But but I don't ever I've always I've repeatedly said throughout my including during that campaign when I first ran that I'm not an anarchist. There is a role for government to play. There's a role for regulations. I, I want my doctor to have gone to medical school. I want to make sure that when my kids are prescribed medicine, what's in the bottle is what it says it is. I'm glad the people flying these airplanes I'm on every week are licensed and that somebody inspected it before it takes off. I think it's over-regulation that you're against. But in terms of these transitions, there is a role for government to play, investing in basic research, creating uh, the, the, uh, the ability, particularly in, in our infrastructure and transportation, to connect from mass, you know, 
long-range uh, transit systems, which I think we can do public-private partnerships with, government steps in and does the connection from those hubs down to the local level. Um, there's a role for government to play in expanding access to 5G technology. And there's a role for government to play in buffering the sort of transition that we need to do. How do we create a higher education system in America that not just trains people for jobs of the 21st century, but potentially has to retrain some people multiple times Which over a 30 or 40 year period. Scenario. Right, and government has to, plays a role in all of that. It's important for government's role, and what we're trying to conserve is the proper role of government. If it does too much, it crowds out other institutions that can do better jobs. If it does too little, nothing happens. So paid family leave is an example. Okay, it's probably a generational thing, but there is a role for government to play in fostering it. The market is not just going to magically create a solution for millions of people who cannot, if they have a child or there's an illness in the family, face bankruptcy uh, because they can't work anymore. That doesn't have to necessarily mean a large government entitlement, but it, it could mean something that we're but, working on. But what you're saying is, is, is heresy uh, in some quarters of your own party right now. Well, I think... It, I, mean, I guess, I mean, in terms of a traditional point of view, some would consider it a heresy, but it's the reality of what their country's at, and I'm prepared to have that argument. And I think a large number of Republicans would agree. Um, you know, in, in no one's talking about repealing Social Security. No one's talking about repealing Medicare. Because there'd be an uprising if you did. Well, because they serve a purpose, right? I mean, my mom is on Medicare. If there was no Medicare and no Social Security, my mother would struggle. She, you know, it would be difficult for us and for the family. So no one's talking about, now we are talking about saving these programs. But, so there is a role for government to play, but I think you can have a government that plays the appropriate role without crowding out the private sector. I do think sometimes we overreach in government, and, and we, that's what we need to, to be vigilant of. Yeah, but you, you've spoken lately about underreach as well. You made a little news on the tax bill because you said, and I think it's demonstrably so, that uh, it didn't pour money into the pockets of the middle class. It didn't create the kind of effect. It did create growth in the short run, no question about it, but 83% of the tax cut well, the, went yeah. to the top 1%, and the tax break for people, other people were relatively small, and the number of, the, the number of companies that actually translated that tax cut into raises, into bonuses, also relatively small. But the context of that is important, because the broader context was as follows. I wasn't the personal rate is, is not what I was speaking about. I was speaking about the C corporation rate, okay? And initially, the proposal was at 20%. And I said, why don't we make you the rate? You said like 1%. Yeah, 20.9% and use that 0.9% to increase the child tax credit so uh, that it's fully refundable at $2,000. Uh, that 0.9% is not going to generate any more, any more growth. It's not going to slow down growth. There is no functional difference between 20 and 21% for a C multinational corporation. But that 0.9% would mean a huge difference for working have, families. And it, well, it did. They went to 21%, but, but it wasn't used for, for the child tax child credit. Care. So my whole point was, whether it was 20 or 21%, I was in favor of a lower corporate rate. You know, I campaigned, and many people did, on a 25% rate. So for me, anything under 25 mm -hmm. was gravy. I'm not against it. I'm in favor of lowering it. I just felt we could have taken a small piece of that and used it instead for workers and gotten a lot better return for it. And that was my argument. You, and it was a huge fight. Most of my colleagues didn't agree with me on you've, that. You've... Uh, You've, you've been a free trader. That's how you came into this uh, Congress. Uh, but you've written lately and spoken about the fact that you understand that there's a, there is a resistance because of the things that we've already talked about, because of the dislocations that people associate with trade. What do you think about what the president's doing right now? Uh, well, which one? Relative to China, which I know you feel strongly about, but also uh, trade 
potentially uh, trade wars with, with Canada, with our European allies. So those are two separate topics. So when you talk to Mexico, Canada, and Europe, there are, and Japan and others, there are clearly trade imbalances. Some are a heritage of World War II where we knew there were imbalances and we allowed them to exist because these countries were developing in the Cold War. They were our allies. They were rebuilding from the destruction of the Second World War. And those things have become institutionalized. Those need to be addressed. China, for me, is not even about trade. It's geopolitical. And I can tell you in the history of man, a, a status quo power and a rising power if, an, if, a, if the equilibrium is broken, it almost always leads to conflict. And that's what I want to avoid. China's going to be a great and powerful country. That is a fact. But if that balance with the United States is disrupted, we are going to have a conflict. And it could be a military conflict. It could be an economic mm -hmm. conflict. It can be both. This may be our last chance to get that right. In the context of that, they are largely making significant gains by stealing $300 billion a year of American intellectual property through forced transfers and straight-out espionage. That needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed now. What I advised the White House, what I talked to Mr. Lighthizer about it, and I think there are many in the administration that would have agreed with this, was let's work with Germany, let's work with Europe, let's work with Japan, and we all have concerns about China, and let's together confront the situation with China and get a proper equilibrium in place. Once we've done that, then we can turn and address the sort of issues that we have uh, with Europe and Asia and the like. Um, so I do support the concept of free trade and, and, and the idea of free trade. It has to be fair and it has to recognize that people are displaced. And even if it's an 80% win and a 20% loss, that 20% is million of Amer millions of Americans, we need to do something to help them transition in that loss. We, have to, we haven't spent enough time focused on that and people like me were guilty of that. When we, um uh, when we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, didn't we, it, wasn't that an enormous opportunity for China to fill in the void? Wasn't that a, it was. talk about geopolitical strategy, that seems like a huge win for them. It was, and unfortunately, the Trans-Pacific Partnership died the day that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump won the nomination because both of them said they were going to kill it. That said... Although a lot of people didn't believe Hillary on that. Well, either way, the point being that now uh, we have a situation that I think is emerging, and that is you look at our ag interest as an example. And everyone's recognizing, my goodness, China has tremendous leverage on American agriculture. Why? Because we are so dependent on the export to that one singular market that the absence of alternative markets has left us vulnerable to Chinese leverage and, and, and pressure. If we had TPP and other agreements, we would have additional markets to balance that out. And, and the same would be true in, from their perspective on their side. The huge market, 1.3 billion people in China, puts places like South Korea and Japan and others sort of in a very vulnerable situation. And so hopefully at some point, whether it's through a series of bilateral agreements, starting with Japan, building on what we have with South Korea, or some renegotiated TPP, one of the best things we can do to, to sort of bring some equilibrium to this relationship with China is to have agreements in Asia. You've led the movement to reverse the administration's uh, position on ZTE. The yep the uh, manufacturer there that you believe is a national security risk. Do you expect to win that fight? I hope so, because if we can't win that fight, we're not going to win the bigger one. I mean, ZTE is an important company, but it's small compared to Huawei and some of the other threats that China poses. For me, the, ZTE, the, the disagreement I have with the White House is the White House views this as punishment for violations on, on the sanctions on North Korea and Iran. And if this was just about that, if this was Samsung, and they had done that violation, and you said you're going to hit them with these fines and all these other things, I'd have no problem with it. ZTE poses a systemic threat 
to American telecommunication. They are not just a phone maker. They make routers and all sort of components in our telecommunications system. Once you embed yourself in the telecommunication right. network of a nation, you can use it for espionage and collection. It's a threat. They shouldn't be in business. They depend on our... So why the administration... Uh, well, you have to ask to... them. I think part of it is they feel like this, this punishment they're imposing is strong because they're only viewing it as a sanctions. Part of it, I think, is the president made a commitment to President Xi to take care of the situation, and now he feels he needs to live up to it, and I respect it. And I think what the president should tell President Xi is, I tried to help you, but Congress is really mad because you steal $300 billion a year from us, and so they hit ZTE. And the bottom line is, uh, if we can't do this on ZTE, there's no way we're going to be able to confront Huawei and the broader threat that China poses to our telecommunications so you, you. You didn't find the spectacle odd when the president stormed out of the G7 and, uh, uh, and castigated Justin Trudeau and uh, removed the U.S. Yeah. from the uh, Well, it's unconventional, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Un unconventional <laughs> is, is, I'd say, a mild... And I think it's a product of this broader... Um, view on all of this. I think the, the president is pointing to something that's real, and that is we have imbalances with Canada and Mexico yeah, and others that are unfair. I think these alliances matter. They do, and that's the problem, and that is that we would be much better served, in my view, if we would have said, look, we all have a problem with China. In the context of the 21st century, that's the bigger issue. Let's work together and address that issue. But at some point, when we're done with that, we're going to have to deal with each other on the other situations that we're facing among ourselves. That's the way it should have been approached. I don't know if we still have a chance to do it that way now. Um, the good news is, look, our alliances with Canada and NATO and Europe and it are so institutionalized and sturdy that we're going to continue to work together. But, well, but I don't, what about the president uh, tweeting uh, a very, very provocative email this week, uh, email, a tweet about Angela Merkel in Germany and uh, suggesting that uh, immigrants are rampant there, that the crime rate is up when it actually is down. It seemed to be putting his finger on the scale to try and topple one of our allies. Well, and again, I would just tell you that it's some, I've now, you know, Donald, I don't know Donald Trump that well until we started running for president in 2015 or 2016. Here's the one thing I know, and that is no matter how much outrage I or others express, he's not going to change his behavior. He, he is who he is. He was elected this way. This is what voters voted on. And he's behaving today how he did on the campaign. And that's what voters chose. And I respect What are the consequences? Well, of I'm a policymaker. And so my job is to ensure that irrespective of the rhetoric and the daily outrage cycle, our public policy is the ones that the people of Florida and our country policy, though, when you interfere in elections in that way and when you blow be, up our I, allies? I can't pass a law. None of us can pass a law to edit uh, or, or uh, change how the president expresses himself on these issues. And frankly, he would rightfully say, this is how I behave and this is what voters chose. My job is to look at things like ZTE and say, on this one, it's bad for our country. We're going to figure out a way to address it and work with him when we agree on things. Try to change his mind when we don't. And if he makes a decision we don't agree with, then try to, to confront it that way. And, and that's otherwise, we'll spend all day as cable news commentators, you know, setting our hair on fire. But that's not my job. My job okay. is to try to help the country move forward and get better. And sometimes that's working with the White House. That's sometimes trying to change his mind. And sometimes, uh, you know, frankly, supporting him when he's right and trying to change his mind when he's not. Isn't some of this just trying to survive? We just went through an election in South Carolina where Mark Sanford, who had been critical of the president on some of these issues, was defeated. The president was, uh, uh, was uh, uh, chortling about that at his meeting with the House I don't know how it is for other week. people. I'm not in cycle. No, I understand. Period. But you've seen, let's just go over the list. Yeah. 
Senator Flake, Senator Corker, um, Senator McCain, sadly, is gravely ill. Mark Sanford lost his primary. Uh, I mean, the pre this party is in the thrall of this president, and anyone who challenges him, and you're being very careful here, anyone who challenges him runs the risk of going the same way. Sanford said, at the, they said, what did you take from this experience? He said, I took that if you're a Republican, you better not challenge, publicly challenge this president. Well, I would, everybody makes their own decision. I would tell you two things about what you've just pointed out. The first is, it's not about being careful or not careful. It's about, one of the things that I give, gives the president strength in the party is many Republicans feel like he's treated unfairly. The media is outraged by everything he does and overreaches. And so the more they do that, the more they feel, I mean, pe people are not uh, oblivious and don't agree with everything he does, but they feel he's treated so unfairly on such a consistent basis, whether you agree with that or not, that they feel like they've got to kind of balance it out by defending him. And, and the second thing that they support him is he's doing exactly what he said he would do if he got elected. As far as my perspective on it is concerned, I, we have taken the president. When we disagree with the president, we, ZTE is an example By of it, you this mean issue. You. Well, and others have, I mean, the Senate passed them. Tom Cotton was the other Republican on this who's close to the president. We've also worked with him on Venezuela, on Cuba, on other matters that we agree on. Bottom line is, I'm not here to do combat with the president. I'm not here to, to support everything he's for. I'm here to work with whoever's in the White House to try to get things done when we agree on something offer a contrasting view and we do not. And that's what, I'm gonna, that's what I told people would I would do if I got it, elected. What would you think about his idea to bring Russia back into the G8? Well, I don't think it's an idea. I think it's just a statement that he made. It would take, the other countries have to agree. Second, I wouldn't agree with it. Uh, well, it was a proposal. It was a suggestion. Yeah, I don't think it's a formal one. I think it's a statement that he made. And bottom line is that it can't happen if the other countries don't agree. Do you think it was wise? I don't believe that we should allow Russia back in. Its behavior hasn't altered at all. It continues to be now a destabilizing force in Libya. Uh, it continues, even to this day, we know, to try to influence and divide societies, not just here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. So its behavior hasn't moderated in any way that would encourage us to bring them back in. Why is he, he has no problem attacking people. Uh, he went after you pretty hard when you were a candidate. Yeah, he went, well, that's a campaign. Right? Yeah, but why is he not, why is he so deferential to Vladimir Putin? Well, you may say he's deferential in terms of the statements. I would point out that the sanctions imposed have continued to increase. There's been continued sanctions and imposition on Russia and on its Although people. you guys passed sanctions, it took a very long time for him to but they, but, Well, but they're moving on him, and there was just about a month ago additional sanctions. So I would, we, we there was, uh, the Ukrainians are now receiving military assistance, which they did not under the previous administration. So I think if you look at the policies, they're strong, as strong or stronger than previous administrations when it comes to Russia. If you view the rhetoric, my view of it is the president is not a political figure. He's not a politician. He didn't grow up and surrounded by Washington think tanks. And his view, as a person who comes out of the world of development, is this is a guy with nuclear weapons in Russia that I need to be able to work with. And if I have animosity towards him, we won't be able to work together. That's how he views it. He's not a politician. Someone who's but he is the commander in chief. The Russians did assault our election. You're on the Intel committee. Uh, you don't have any doubt about that. Do no, but I, but, but I didn't have any doubt in October of 2016 when I was running for re-election. I think I'm the only Republican in the country that refused to talk about WikiLeaks and all the, the leaks uh, of the, from the Clinton emails. I said, this is the work of a foreign intelligence agency, and I'm not going to use it to advance my campaign or anybody else's. 
And I said that in October of 2016, in the you, middle of my own re-election campaign. The, the chairs of your committee both said they, they, they embraced the conclusion of the intelligence community that this was, there was an effort on the part of the Russians to interfere in the election, to do so on the part, uh, on the, uh, on the side of the president. Well, I would rephrase that. I would say they most definitely interfered in the election. I believe their primary purpose was to ensure that no matter who got elected <coughs> president, they would be weakened by a divided society. I would say that if they, they probably fully expected Hillary Clinton to win. They may have had a personal preference for Donald Trump at some level because they hated her so much. But in the end, I think their primary purpose was not to elect one candidate over the other, but to divide American society, uh, to, or I should say to exacerbate our existing divisions in a way that the next president would be weakened no matter who it was. And if you look at it today and the debates we're having and a year and a half into an investigation and the constant flow of information about Russia, you have to say they were quite successful in exacerbating and using these pre-existing divisions to weaken So America. not a hoax? Uh, what, the Russian what? interference? Yes. No. I mean, I said it back in October of 2016. I stand by it now. And by the way, the one thing that he was able to play like a fiddle, Putin, was he understood that the U.S. media, when those emails were leaked, they weren't focused on the leak. They weren't focused on the fact that these emails were hacked. and They were mm -hmm. focused on the contents. They mm -hmm. were so salacious that they couldn't help report on the salaciousness of the emails and not the fact that they were illegally obtained uh, through the work of a foreign intelligence agency. That should have been the real story. They ignored it. You know so Bob, he knows that. And you, he, know, you, you know Bob Mueller because you were in the Senate when he was the FBI director. What's your opinion of him? My opinion is he's served our country admirably for a long time in uniform at the FBI. Trust his integrity? I do, and I believe that the best thing, and I've told this to the people who have asked me, I've said it repeatedly, the best thing for the president and for the country is for him to finish his investigation, that it be thorough, and that the entire truth come out. I truly believe that. I believe it's the best thing for the president, for his administration, and for America, and I yeah. still do. No, my, my view, and I've said this to Democrats, I, I, I trust Mueller, who was, I was there briefly when he was the FBI director, uh, and whatever his conclusion is, I'm prepared to say he conducted a thorough investigation, he's a person of integrity, and I accept it. But Republicans who support the president should do the same, shouldn't they? I think everybody should say we want to know the truth. No matter how you voted for or how you feel about public policy, we want the whole truth to come out. And that's what I think the Mueller investigation gives us the opportunity to have is the entire truth. And I think I still, I'll reiterate it, the best thing that could happen for this president is for Bob Mueller to finish his work and all the truth come out. And it's the best thing that could happen for the country. And He's not behaving say, that way, though. Well, you'll have to ask them. Obviously, they're entangled. With, they have a legal strategy now and all sorts of other things associated with it. You're asking it me. It seems that like the strategy is to impeach Mueller in advance so that if whatever he says, if it's unfavorable, it could be viewed as partisan. Well, again, I, I don't know what their legal strategy is. But you don't believe is. that will be the case. I have no reason to believe that Bob Mueller, we don't have any insight into the investigation. No, Nobody should, you know right? him but, but, I, but my, my, if, if he did something unfair, it would be uncharacteristic of the way he has served this country up to this point. Bob Mueller, now that doesn't mean that there aren't people at the FBI that behaved in ways that were detrimental. Those individuals did tremendous damage to an important bureau and an agency in this country. Uh, the FBI is, thousands of people work there, 99.9% .9 are honorable people that are doing a good job every day. The behavior of a handful of people in key positions that have now been exposed has hurt the credibility of that agency. It's ter terribly You said that Mueller shouldn't be fired. What, would, would firing Sessions or, or Rosenstein be uh, the same 
give you the same concern? If it's for that reason, of course. I mean, because that doesn't. Know? Well, and I think there would be a lot of questions about how they were, why they were fired, if they were fired, unless it was, you know. Would it raise hell up cause. here? I mean, would people be I think upset? so, but it wouldn't solve anything either because someone else would just pick up the mantle and continue with it. In essence, you'd find, I don't think that's, that's the reason why I don't believe it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, firing them is not going to stop this thing from moving forward. That's why we should let it play out. And when the truth comes out, it would be the best thing for the president and for the country. Well, uh, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I also would say I am one person, I'm sure you're another, who thinks it's better that we're talking to North Korea than on war footing uh, with them. What, 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 but uh, what was your impression of uh, the president uh, essentially defending North Korea from these charges of human rights abuses. You sat in the chamber when he gave his State of the Union. He gave a very eloquent five-minute yeah. disquisition on, on how bad their record is. Didn't you think it was uh, peculiar? Yeah, so Kim Jong-un is a grotesque human rights violator, has death camps. I mean, just horrifying things. He's a complete bizarre individual. Unfortunately, he possesses between 30 and 60 nuclear warheads, according to open source reporting, and an increased capacity in ballistic missiles. I know for a fact that the last thing President Obama told President Trump when in their last meeting, perhaps their only meeting, was um, this is the biggest problem you're going to face. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that the president early in his presidency was presented with scenarios of what war on the peninsula would look like and the catastrophic potential loss of life and felt an obligation to do everything he could to avoid that from happening. It's easy to sit in these think tanks. I understand, but, but that didn't but, require but, defending. Well, let me tell you how we get to record. that point. So he imposes these incredible sanctions yeah. on North Korea and, and, and Build, forces Building them. on the sanctions that were there. Uh, Kim Jong-un reaches a point where he says, you know, I'm, I don't know if I can attach a warhead to a missile before my economy collapses. I need to figure out a way to change this dynamic. The president takes him up on it. Going back to what I told you earlier, the president comes from a background in, in private life of figuring out how to make other people like him and be happy with him. And so I think his view is if Kim Jong-un likes him, he's going to get a better deal out of him than he's, than he's in open warfare with him. And he doesn't just do it with him. I've seen him do it with political opponents and yeah. with others. So he approaches it as a person who's not a politician. That said, all of it is, look, do I like the things that were said? Do I agree with them? Of course not. I don't believe Kim Jong-un is talented. I'm not the guy negotiating with him. And, and, and I'll tell you this at the end. As long as the sanctions are in place, that's the only thing that matters, because that's the reason why Kim Jong-un is Although you've said the, the president's rhetoric and his treatment of Kim Jong-un give some incentive to the Chinese to try and loosen those well, that, that, and that's, the th that's, that's where I measure everything by. If what the president says under, uh, gives strength to the argument at the UN that we should weaken sanctions, then it becomes problematic. And, and that's what we're keeping a very close eye on. Because if those sanctions are weakened in any way, we're going to have a problem. Kim Jong-un may walk away. Understand, he doesn't want to be South He's Korea. already gotten quite a bit out of it, hasn't he? He's been well, elevated sure. to yeah. the world stage. He's an outlaw. Yeah, uh, that's true. He, the president has said that he will suspend uh, joint military exercises with South yeah. Korea. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I think all of that is true and something that in an ideal world we wouldn't be at, and, and I have trouble with it. There's no, there's no doubt. I don't like elevating this guy. I also understand that this is an individual that possession. I mean, he, today, it, the highest probability of a nuclear confrontation and of a nuclear war since the end of the Second World War when the attack on Japan happened exists on the Korean Peninsula. And so there might, I am willing to be flexible in how much uh, leeway we give someone if they can avoid that. And, uh, but, but I am concerned that any rhetoric 
that could be used to justify weakening existing sanctions would actually be counterproductive. And that's what we have to keep a very close eye on. Let me, let me ask you about guns, because <clears throat> I admired you for showing up at the town hall in Florida after the Parkland uh, uh, massacre. Uh, you took a beating there. Um, you also said at that time that um, you know, you'd consider certain measures raising the age for people to buy guns to 21, uh, limiting uh, large capacity clips and mm -hmm. so on. Um, none of that happened. Um, and it does give rise to the question of whether the president was right when he said to some of your colleagues in that famous White House get-together, you guys are afraid of the NRA. I would say, number, number one, <coughs> the CNN town hall, people say you take a beating or it was brave. I mean, we're in America. Like, the worst thing that happens to somebody in America is you lose your, your, your election, you know, but you don't have to go into exile. Nobody's going to kill you. Number two, it's my job. Number three, on the issues that you outlined, I feel, again, as a lawmaker, that my job is to get things done. I wanted to focus first on the things that I knew we could get done, like the Stop School Violence Act, like Fix NICS, and try to build momentum to do more. I don't believe, I'm telling you, there's money on both sides and influence on both sides of this issue. There are a significant amount of groups out there, including many in the media, but you know, uh, interest groups, who support gun control and will reward you financially for it in terms of running for office. I think yeah, the NRA the harnesses, issue is that the money that was given, but that's I mean, my experience vote. is it's less the money than the fact that the NRA can mobilize voters in a pretty yeah. effective Well, first of all, it's false. I mean, the NRA, they, they, they throw out these figures that it would be illegal. The NRA spent money against my opponent, so I guess tangentially benefited me in that regard because they didn't like my opponent's agenda. But the NRA and any group like it is mobilizing an existing feeling in America. There are people in this country who strongly support the Second Amendment, and I'm one of them. The NRA motiv mo motivates that and turns it into uh, in political no, action. No, no, They're not no, a business no political. No, no. Uh, right enumerated in the Constitution is without limit. And this one has limits, too. I mean, you can't buy an automatic machine but gun easily. More, you but, can't but, buy an anti-aircraft weapon. Yeah. So we do have, I think we have to have restrictions, but if you're going to restrict a constitutional right, you have, they have to be limited, and they have to be restrictions that actually will achieve something. You, but you seem to be saying, you, again, that, well, we can't pass this law, so there's no point. No, I think it's more than that in this case, and that is, will these laws actually achieve something? If you look at the state of New universal York... Universal background checks. So we have universal background checks in America. The only places that are not checked for backgrounds in this country is if you have a private sale. And people keep pointing to, to gun shows. In gun shows, the vast majority of the exhibitors, almost all of them in most gun shows, are federally licensed firearms dealers. You have to undergo a background check. Only private sales are prohibited. And the reason why private sales are prohibited is because these individuals are not in the business of selling guns. For them to conduct a criminal background check is not, going into the NICS system is complicated. It's not the same as running a background check on a tenant. It's a totally different, more complicated system, largely open to law enforcement. Now, we might be able to innovate an idea called a buyer's permit, where the obligation would be on the buyer to present a permit in which they went and got their background run. That, and actually, the, the, the interesting thing about that idea is that it would actually allow us to conduct sting operations against the black market, go in the street and arrest people who sell guns to someone who doesn't have to have a buyer's permit. But, but I, we so do you have just, universal So you, your view is that uh, banning high-capacity magazines, raising the age, uh, any of these things, universal background checks, none of these would be effective in, well, in reducing this. Because I said I would to be going from, you've had three big massacres in your state in recent years. One of them, you said, moved you to 
when you were thinking about running for re-election to run. And it feels like we keep going from one tragedy to another. We grieve and then nothing changes. Right. Well, let me say on that one, you're talking about Pulse. Pulse was a terror attack. We keep forgetting it. He was motivated and he said it and he was motivated yeah. by a radical jihadist element. He happened to use guns for that attack. In the case of, he was also a licensed yeah, security guard in Florida and he was I'll well say, over I'm 18. Not, yeah, I'm not asking you to... But, but let me go back on the age one. But, I support that. But that wouldn't have done anything in Texas where he was 17 years old and His walked in. The, I don't know if he gave it to him or he took it, but he didn't. Yeah. He used a revolver and a shotgun. Understood. But shouldn't we do... Uh, well, I ju I'm just asking you. Yes, we should do more. What, what about... I mean, these, the, the earnest pleas of people who have been victims lost their loved ones, who see these tragedies mounting up at, at a rapid pace, one after right. another, and each time we grieve. Right. I mean... And I talk to them every day, and so I talk to multiple parents from Parkland, a couple from Pulse, on a regular basis, email, phone calls, text messages, and they've each settled into a different part of this issue. Some of them are working on school safety improvements, which I think is an element of it. A lot of them have worked with us on what we think might be the most effective thing in the short term, and that is helping to identify uh, someone who is in danger which is, and, and stop them before they act, which is why I, along with Senator Nelson and Reid, have introduced the red flag law to incentivize states to pass a law that allows you to go to court and remove guns mm -hmm. from people who are dangerous. Um, it's, we continue to look at the high capacity magazine limit. The problem with that is we can't really get a consensus we can justify on the number, and we've talked about the buyer's permit. So we are, in the case of the red flag law, it's there. We're looking for a vehicle to attach it to so we can get it passed. Florida already has one. Uh, I just, you know, I, I need to move on. I, I just say we have exponentially more guns in this country than any other country, and we have exponentially more gun deaths, and it seems to me that there's some correspondence, and we need to think about how... We, we how probably, one of the reasons why we have more guns is we have a Second Amendment that gives people the right, and on the deaths, it's true, it does not diminish these terrible tragedies that occur in these schools, but we know statistically that a significant percentage of those deaths involve either criminal activity uh, at the street level or suicides, which is another crisis America is mm -hmm. facing. That does not diminish the fact that we've had far too many shootings at schools and churches and gatherings and we need to address those and what's the driver behind them. Because ultimately the issue there is we have young Americans, almost exclusively males, who want to kill a bunch of people for reasons that sometimes we don't fully understand. They happen to be using guns, but the core issue is they want to kill people. Yeah. We have to stop that. But they'd kill fewer it. if they didn't have guns that could kill people at a, well, at a prodigious rate. But I, I want to move on because well, we a shotgun killed a, a lot of people in Texas. We, so. we, uh, we have a little, only a, a little time left. I want to ask you about the 2016 campaign. Um, and Which I have one? A, I ran for Senate, too. I so. have a... Uh, let's talk about the one, <laughs> the, the, the presidential campaign. Yeah. I have some sense of what a presidential campaign entails. I would say, yeah. And it's hard. It's, it's really, really a gauntlet. Um, and so, uh, you know, I honor anybody who's willing uh, to do that. What did you learn about yourself in that campaign, and what did you learn about the country? Well, first of all, I could tell you that there's no way you can run for president uh, as for as long as we did in terms of you know, where we were in the race and not learn from it, because you're exposed to places and people and things that you didn't know before. You know, Growing up, for me, immigration meant more people like my family, more people like my neighbors, and I like my family and I like my neighbors. When you go to different places around the country, you recognize that in other places, immigration might mean more competition for limited jobs in a, in, in a constrained economy. 
Um, and it doesn't mean that you change your view on the issue, but it does expose you to a different view of things and some of the challenges. You see some of the areas in the Northeast that were emptied out by globalization and automation and some of the trends that have happened. And we should you point out automation is now taking 80% of these jobs in this economic transition. Yeah. Now robots and computers are taking more jobs than China and Mexico or any other country. Right, and so you see these sorts of things and, and you learn from it. I think you, you I, we had a, I had a, you know, I think people, the result was not obviously what I intended, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was an incredible experience for us. We learned a lot. I believe I'm a better senator for having done it. We made some great friendships across the country. And, um, and you know. What about and, failure? I mean, you, you were. You learn more you, from failure than you do from you success. You were a superstar. I mean, you were the House Speaker in Florida at what, 32 years old? elected to the Senate at 39. You entered that Senate race as a, uh, as a highly, highly touted candidate, and you'd never experienced failure in, in politics before. Yeah, but I think you learn more from failure than success. I, if you go back and see my quotes from those peri that period of time, I told people there are no stars in politics. There are people that get attention today, there'll be a new person tomorrow. It's just not, I mean, I'm not a, there's not a celebrity thing, there's not sports. This is public service, and there are, there are people that oppose you that will eventually make sure you come down a notch. So when you did do, you do anything wrong that you, in the you, campaign? I mean, what 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 would you do differently if you did it again? You know, I, I think our message was the right one about these changes in our economy. I, I think we probably could have done a better job of condensing it in a way that applied to people. There are things that we could that, that people understood more clearly. There's nothing I could have done about the fact that there were 17 people running. You know, I, you had a I, bad debate in New Hampshire. Well, I had a bad mission to take you out. Yeah, and I had a bad 90 seconds. I made a decision, a, a mistake. You know, the mistake that I made was uh, not attacking, going back at him. You know, I knew Chris. I like him. We're friends now, and we talk. But for those 90 seconds, I, I why did he do it? Do you him. think he was? So I don't know. Well, you'll have to ask him why. I don't know. But the answer is, I probably should have gone back at him just hard, and, and it would have been forgotten and moved on. But my sense of it was, you know, I knew he probably wasn't going to make it past New Hampshire. I didn't want to spend the whole debate being the story about me fighting with Chris Christie on stage. It was a tactical mistake not to come right back at him. And if you watch my Senate debates when I ran for re-election, yeah. I would leave nothing unanswered. I just attacked him on everything he attacked me on. Well, and then, but that, the race was, is, that yeah. wouldn't have changed the race. It would have changed New Hampshire a little bit, yeah. but I don't know if it would have changed the race. Then you went, sort of went on the road for a kind of lost weekend where you were trading insults with Trump. Yeah, but that was the end. And I, I didn't like that we did that in the end. It's not who I am. It was kind of at the end where you kind of just felt like someone has to stand up, you know. But when we didn't, on Super Tuesday, we underperformed. Uh, we could have won Virginia. We came very close to winning in Virginia. Probably should have spent a little bit more time there. We, got, mm -hmm. we jumped on it too late. If we had won Virginia and Minnesota, there might have been a different narrative. You come out of Super Tuesday, you only win one state, and the media starts saying, this guy's got no chance to win. At that point, people that are supporting you will kind of gravitate to someone else because no one wants to vote for someone they think is going to You got lose. pummeled in your home state, and part of the reason people ascribed that to was that you had entered the race after Jeb Bush, who was a mentor of yours, got into the race. Was that a hard decision for you, and do you well, regret that at all? You know better than anyone that these states build upon each other. I mean, by the time you get to Florida, people don't think you have a chance to win. You're, you know, they're not going to vote for you. They're going to waste their vote on you. Now, six months later, I get reelected and, and receive So you don't think the seven, Bush decision, no, the Bush antagonism was, tour? No, because I think when you're running for president, it's different than running for county commission. You know, it's not two people against each other. There's 16, 17 people in this race. I never viewed it as a race against Jeb Bush. 
I viewed it as a collection of individuals running and it would sort itself out. Would I have preferred it not to be the case? Was it uncomfortable because I liked Jeb and we were friends? Of course. But, you know, in the end, sometimes these things happen. And we had an unusual year in 2016. We had a huge class of Republicans who were all in position to run for president at the same time, and every one of them did. You know, in every election cycle, people are speculated on, but a few don't run. I think everyone who was talked so about no running for president. no regrets about running. I don't have regrets. It was what was supposed you, to happen. Do you, and do you think you might uh, run again? I have no James Carville I, said uh, that running for president is like sex. You don't just do it once. <laughs> well, he would say that. <laughs> I, um, I can only say that, you know, when you've run already, you kind of understand what it means. And I don't know where I'll be in seven years in my life, where my kids will be and everything else. Um, I don't play the game anymore, who knows? But right now, I don't have a, I'm not working towards that. I'm trying to, I know I'm gonna be in the Senate for another four and a half years. I want that time to matter because I'm away from family. I want them to know that I made a difference while I was here. You, um, you, you talked about things you said at the end of the campaign. I want to read a couple of them to you because they, they, were, they were incisive and maybe prescient. You said, uh, I think there are a lot of people in the conservative movement who are going to spend years and years explaining to people how they fell into this and how they allowed this to happen. We should not have cults of personality here. If you look at any political movement in the world where the leader says, deposit your trust in me, for I'm going to lead you to salvation, that, that's only worked according to my faith one time. And it wasn't a political movement. Anytime a leader builds an entire movement around himself, it almost always leads to disaster. That was a critique of Donald Trump. Yeah. He won the election, and so my job, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton had won that election. Do you stand by that? I do. I met everything I said there, and I think in the long term, both of those things will be true, uh, but for different reasons than perhaps we're accessing now. I would just say that in the case of if Hillary Clinton had been elected, people would be asking me, why aren't you cooperating more with her to get things done? She won the election. So why would that not be true if someone of my own party is elected? Do I have differences of opinion with Donald Trump on public But you would policy? be outspoken on things that you disagreed with. And we are. With her. But we are. But I, but I think. Pretty cautious during Well, this. it's not cautious. I just think that the, out, the outrage cycle is such now that if I disagree with the president on public policy, I want it to be a public policy disagreement. That's not how it'll be portrayed. It'll be portrayed as a Republican attacking the president because we've created a cycle where the way you become famous and liked in many media circles is by being a Republican that goes after the president. I think a more and the way you way, get extinct is the way is. is but by, I'm not on the ballot for another four. Who knows what the world's going to look like in four years? And I'm not really thinking about that. I'm just thinking about what is the best way to effectuate policy change. And I think it's like what we've handled ZTE. It's not personal. The president has a view on it. I have a different view. I'm going to do what I need to do in the Senate. He'll have to do what he does as president. We'll work together on other things. I think that's the way you do this stuff. I'm not going to fall into this every day. Can I get on television and say mean things about somebody so people will cover me? Because we already have too much of that, and it's stopping us from doing too many things. I get it. There's a place for it in American politics. I've done my share of it. But there are some serious issues we need to solve, and I'm not going to spend all my time as one of the two talking heads on a screen on cable news screaming at people. I'm just not going to do it. Um, we talked... Uh earlier about the mismatch between uh, the pace at which government ru uh, runs when the country is divided and the pace at which change is coming. Uh, this seems like a really big problem. You talked here a lot about, well, we, we should act on this and we should act on that, but you don't express a lot of confidence on the ability of Congress to do that. Well, two things. Why? The first is our system isn't built for quick action, right? And the second is because if it's not controversial, it doesn't get a lot of attention. 
So there are a lot of issues that we need to be dealing with, vocational training, career education, reforming higher education so that we have more options. It's not just four-year degrees for everyone that are not partisan. I mean, these are not partisan issues. That's the blessing and that's the curse. You can't raise money on it. You can't get a lot of interest in it in the press. And so it doesn't get a lot of prioritization. And so we've got to kind of fight through that. And there are things happening at the margins, at the local level and state level, but we need to make it a strategic national priority to reform our public policies to address some of the new realities of the 21st century. We're going to try next week on paid family leave and hopefully get some leverage there. But you'll see how hard that is because one side wants it to be a government program. Our side does not. We've got to figure out a way to, to help more people uh, you know, access a benefit. It's tough, you know, and it's hard, but we got to do it, and, and we're, that's what we're going to work on doing. But our system is not conducive to it, but it's the system we have, and it works better than the other ones. That's your office. Yeah, come on. It's a, it's a fancy place. Look at that. They even vacuumed it last uh, night because they knew you were coming. Right. You're right. Unlike heart, it looks like it should. It is. You know, I, I was a... Uh, a huge, uh, I'm a big Bobby Kennedy fan. I've read almost yes, everything yeah. I can about him. Yeah, yeah. And so I was trying to figure out where his office was. It's not in this building. It was what they called the new Senate office building, which is Dirksen, and it's not even an office anymore. Why, so. did, you, why did you admire him? I, I'm a big admirer. I, I am as well. Yeah, so I, there's two Bobbies, right? There's Bobby before 1963 and after. And uh, what I kind of admired was kind of his energy and sort of moral uh, drive. I mean, when he locked in on something he thought was wrong, he just, he he just went after it. And he, he went after. Was, the, he also was not a conformist. I mean, he didn't. He was willing to challenge policies right, left, and center. Yeah. So he jumped right into the poverty issue across America, the farm workers, sort of anywhere where he found that there was injustice. It just angered him, and he went after it with a sort of moral outrage that I really think picked up after 1963, 1964, and in his time in the Senate. I also think that, uh, you know, the, the, if you look at his history, like civil rights early on, there was a lot of suspicion about him, that he really mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, he's a guy that authorized wiretaps right. and so forth. In the aftermath of it, I mean, he embraced it and went after it with a sort of tenacity that you see that he was a young man that was learning and, and, and being, as he was exposed to things that perhaps he hadn't seen in his upbringing, it brought out a sort of, sort of very Catholic social doctrine moral outrage that he took action on. Can you be that kind of... Today, figure in our politics today, you you, 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 seem, you admire it. Yeah, I think you can try. Um, you know, his era was not easy either. Right. But I think the difference now is um, it's almost always politicized. The other side, rather than seeing the value of why you're doing it, will immediately figure out how to line up with whoever it is you're fighting against and justify it. Because if you're for it, they've got to be against it. Now that fever, at some point, I hope will break for the good of our country. But that's not the trend right now. Yeah. You said, you've said a lot about the modern media environment, and I want to see some of your stuff okay. here as well. But uh, I just want to ask you this question. Um, we, we have all of these outlets. One thing Bobby Kennedy didn't have was cable television, yeah. social media. Your party is really, Fox is kind of the voice to majority of Republicans. They give an administration's viewpoint on it. Isn't that one of the reasons why he has so consolidated uh, the base? Probably one. I would also say that uh, the way the other outlets have behaved sometimes is the other. Look, they're in a business. Okay? CNN is in business, MSNBC, Fox News, they're in business. They sell advertising and the rate of that advertising is based on viewers. So they want eyeballs. Yeah, of course. And what drives eyeballs, whether it's traffic on a website 
or oh, by the way, fundraising uh, through direct mail is outrage and strong language. That's what gets you famous. If you're a house member that wants to be a national figure, you go on TV and you say things that are over the top. And that's the culture and environment that we're in. The media is a part of it. Politicians participate in it. Well, Donald um, Trump mastered it. As I told you earlier, I mean, I think being from New York, he understood that you could dominate earned media by driving mad. He's dominated, on fire. he's dominated every news cycle in America since June or July of 2015. And, and I don't think that's an accident. I think he, in his time in New York uh, as a developer and a promoter of a brand, really learned how to do that. And it was a key part of his victory, to be frank. So show me around. Here. All right. Well, it's, uh, you know. I know you so this is our, this is the, the, obviously our, we call it our ambassador chair when ambassadors come see us uh -huh. or whatever, but so the university, I'm a Florida graduate, but the University of Central Florida went undefeated this year, and I think if you win every game in college football, you should be the national champion, but, uh, but that's not the way it played out because they weren't invited to that, so, but this is, uh, this is the one, see if we can work around here, this is a gift from the King of Jordan. You know, uh, you're a huge football fan. I am. Yeah. So you, that's you, why I try to collect as many of these as I can get my uh, hands yes. on. See if I can open this thing here. Yeah, I think you spoke on this Colin Kaepernick issue. Well, I think he has a First Amendment right to speak. He's also, if he's an NFL player, these, you know, in the NFL, they'll fine you because your socks aren't high enough. So, you know, it's a kind of a catch-22. And he has a, whether you agree with the statement or not, you think he has a right to speak. But at the same token, I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying. It's a complex issue, but, um, you know. You agree with the, with the the president's said about him and the other NFL player about not kneeling. Yeah, I, look, I don't agree with why they're doing. It. I, do, I, I, they have a right to do it, uh, the constitutional right to do it, but I don't agree with necessarily everything they're saying. Now, I do agree that there is a large number of particularly young African American males in America who feel their interaction with law enforcement is different than others. And whether you agree with them or not, that that's true, if they feel that way, we have to address it. If a significant portion of the American family feels that way, then we have an issue. You know, and, and, and so we've got to address it. But so you don't think they should leave the country as the president? No, I don't think they should leave the country, no. I think that, uh, all right, this is the former embassy in, in Libya. So we were there after uh -huh. they had driven us out of there. Gaddafi hadn't been captured yet, but he had been overthrown. That was a, probably a trip we shouldn't have taken. It probably wasn't safe to be there. But, um, As we learned tragically later. Yeah, yeah, not long later. These are just uh, signed to us by Navy, beat Army. I got to get one from Army. Dan Marino, that's a ball. He's your guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Your... I caught a pass from him on the floor of the, of the, of the Florida House of Representatives. So uh, he threw it pretty hard, too. <laughs> and these are just things that we've picked up from all of our different trips around the world and chances we've had to meet with people. So. Yeah. Oh, this is good. You'll probably know about this. Politics and Eggs, New Hampshire, yes. 2016. Yes, I, yeah. I remember that. I, yeah. I've, sp I've spoken there. Yeah, pretty good. And we had a great experience doing all that. So. Yeah. yeah. What about the Senate itself? You know, you had some, uh, har uh, you spoke openly about your frustrations when you decided that you were going to run for president, not yeah. run for the Senate. Well, I just felt like to get things done at the scale that we're talking about, the Senate was not conducive to it. Um, my second term's been a lot better. I think it's been helpful to have an administration of my own party, people that I know there, and uh, you know, and still have retain the majority in the House and Senate. But it still probably moves slower than I would like it, just because I'm an impatient person. Uh, I'm not unique in that frustration, I suppose. But um, but I certainly feel like my second term has been more productive than my first one so far, just because of different dynamics. And frankly, longer you do something, the better you get at it, too. So, so maybe that's part of it.
Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.